Coming up this week on Breaking Badness, a special on-the-road edition of Voices from InfoSec with Caitlin Kiska, incident responder, birdwatcher, and ex-professional poker player? Stay tuned. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness. This is Tim Helming, and I am on the road at GERCON in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And joining me today is Caitlin Kay, an expert in incident response, who has uh, graciously joined us on the podcast today. So, Caitlin, welcome. Thank you. Um, you give me a lot more credit than I do. I'm definitely not an expert in incident response, but um, my name is Caitlin Kiska. I'm a senior incident responder at a major retailer. Um, and before that, I was also in Threat Intel, and I kind of pride myself in combining the two. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to dig into that a little bit. So first of all, hey, let's talk Gurkhan. So what have you thought about Gurkhan so far? So I really like Grand Rapids, particularly for short sprints of time. There's a lot of really good beer, great restaurants. It's easy to navigate. Um, so there have been great talks, and it's been a great venue, and I've had a, a wonderful time overall. What how many, about you? How what many about times you? have you done this one? Uh, two. This is my second time. All right. It's my first time at Gurkhan, and I will say uh, I'm impressed. It's been a really fun show. So uh yeah, if you haven't been to this con, definitely recommend it. Um, so, Caitlin, how did you get started in... Actually, let's go way back, not even just InfoSec. Like, when did you first think you were interested in any sort of technology? So, I have a very atypical uh, path to InfoSec and in technology in general. Uh, initially, I actually went to culinary school. And then after that, I played online poker for a living for most of my 20s. Um, and... Online poker for multiple different reasons uh, was something I didn't want to do once I approached my 30s. And so I started thinking about what can I do with this analyst skill set that I have uh, and this kind of natural, innate pattern recognition skill set that I have. And initially, I wanted to go into data science. And data science um, really lends itself to online poker, where I'm collecting data, then making strategies for how to use it to exploit my opponent, and then also to shore up my own skill set. Um, but going into data science is basically like saying you want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Like you're like, well, what what are you going to do with it? And so I started kind of exploring what can I do with data science, and I really enjoyed this idea of kind of using my natural data science skill set for cybersecurity and catching outlier behavior. And it ended up when I was at an MSSP SOC, this was something that was very very useful, particularly with pattern recognition and catching outlier behavior. So it was very similar to what I was doing in poker. You're keeping our streak alive of uh, picking extraordinarily interesting <laughs> stories and people for Breaking Badness, Voices yeah. from InfoSec. Online, I have never met a person who made a living playing poker before. So, uh, word to the wise, Breaking Badness listeners, if you meet Caitlin, do not try to BS her. You yeah. will not win. I, mean, I, I Online poker is a different skill set than live poker. Okay, that's fair, because um, I guess you're not... I, I Okay, I know nothing, so... Uh, and maybe there's other listeners too, too. So who don't know anything about this? So you're not like it's not like a Zoom call where you're looking at each other. It's just a board. It's a much more mathematical strategy and game where basically what's going on is I'm collecting data in the background while I'm playing people about what they do, and then making strategies to see again: do they have a strong hand? Do they have a weak hand? And if so, how can I counter this and make the most money off the hand myself? Got it. Yeah. But yeah, so in real poker, reading the other players is so valuable. And so in the online version, you don't have that. So you just have their prior moves to go by. Is that right? That's how online, that's how live poker should be played too. Um, very few, 
it's kind of like a, a 90s version of poker where people think like, oh, this person's moving their leg. I think I know what they're up to. That's not what people who are really good at poker are actually looking at. They're looking at pattern recognition. So I've seen you play X amount of hands and this mm -hmm. is what you've done. Are you fitting a pattern? Are you looking, are you doing something similar that you did the last time you had a strong hand like aces? Are you doing something similar that you did the last time you had a weak hand like two seven and you're trying to, again, just do more pattern analysis and heuristics really at the end of the day. Gotcha. So, Okay. All right. Well, thank you for educating at least this uh, naive uh, poker. I'm not even, I don't even know uh, very many of the games. I know Texas yeah. Hold'em is huge now. It was five card draw when I was a kid. It seems like it's all changed. The only thing I can play is Texas Hold'em. I'm really terrible at everything else. So, <laughs> and there, yeah. Yeah, there are so many different games and variations. I never, I had no idea, but uh, Okay, well, that's really cool. So, yeah. so you decided you didn't want to do poker forever. Cybersecurity seemed interesting. Yes. You could apply some of the skills. So, take us through. Like, what was your journey like? So, what happened is I started applying to different companies, and I knew it was going to be a reach. And I was in school um, for computer science initially is what I was going to do. Um, so, I started applying, and I found a company that was very interested in me within like two months of applying to different places. I think I only turned in like six or seven resumes, which for people who are mid-career changers into cybersecurity is not very much. Like you hear stories of people having to turn in 100, 150 resumes and never having someone call them back. Yeah. It's terrible. Um, but I found this company that was willing to take a pun intended, I guess, a gamble on me. We um, love puns here at Breaking <laughs> yeah. Badness. That is one of our signature things. So keep them coming. Yeah. And the... Um, they, they did. They wanted to gamble on me a little bit. They, they saw something they liked. and it, But the first company I worked for was an MSSP SOC, which um, kind of leads us to one of the reasons I'm here, which is to talk about alert fatigue. MSSP SOCs are the way that a lot of people start their career. Um, it's a really good, easy way to transition. And they're always hiring because they have a huge burnout rate, to be honest with you. Um, and so that's where I started. And it was... Um, it was a, a ride, and now I'm a senior incident responder at a really major corporation. So that's what what I've been doing, and that's how I got started. It obviously so. was a good on ramp and good training. Yeah. So that is really cool. Um, and uh, there was one other thing that I needed to rewind on. You went to culinary school. So yes. all right, tell us about that a little bit too. Uh, I always like to say there's. Uh, many iterations of Caitlin. In the first iteration of Caitlin, I wanted to be um, a restaurateur and own like own or work for a like a, a, a nice high-end chain of restaurants. And I found out, um, like a lot of people who think the restaurant industry is very interesting, actually working in the restaurant industry is a whole another, it's its, its own different stressful job. Mm -hmm. And it's long hours and you're very beholden to the customer and reviews and all these things. And I just decided it wasn't for me. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I'm just going to say, it and then we can cut it out later. But yeah, I ended up dating someone who was playing online poker at the time and was doing quite well. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I'm at least as intelligent as this person. <laughs> so if he's doing really well, I can do really well. And I ended up randomly playing online poker for a living and uh, traveling for most of my twenties. So pause. Yeah. I would love to leave that in if you, if you're you probably okay can. With it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah, that should be fine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Okay, so is cooking still interesting to you? Are you a yes. foodie? So like, I'm, I'm uh, definitely, I cook all the time. I am a co-host on Unicorn Chef, which is a, uh, cyber, a cooking show on YouTube that Bryson Bort of Scythe and Grimm mm. does. Um, and I'm one of the main co-hosts. And I, 
I cook all the time for people I love. I cook for myself. I do the cooking show. I think with the cooking show, me and a few other people were responsible for raising probably like $9,000 for a variety of charities. So it's something I'm really proud of. And wow. I like to be able to put my, my skills to good use. And that's one way I do it. So That is really yeah. cool. Excellent. Okay. So... Okay, so you made the transition from MSSP land to uh, working at a, a large company. Yeah. And so what was it like? Like, how, what was your learning curve like when you joined that team? The, so going from an MSSP where you have multiple clients, and it was very valuable for my career, and it's something, if you can, we'll do another pun, if you can, you know, withstand the heat in the kitchen of working for an MSSP sock, because it's hard, it's really good experience because you could just see a lot of different ways that companies do things and all the different tool sets and the, the places that have big teams versus small teams. You get to kind of get a nice feel for it. And then I moved to a larger, um, much more corporate company. And that was different for me. And it was a different sort of education because I had to learn how to work budgets and how to work the system and how to get my budget passed for my team along with you know my manager and my director and how do we all work in this together. And that was very, very interesting having to... to think about those things for the first time. So, Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the different, the variety, having a variety of experiences, if you have different roles and whatnot, I think is really valuable. But then also what you said about as an MSSP, you have clients that have all these different approaches, different, yes. uh, d- different exposures, different technology stacks and all of that. That's, yeah, it seems like it would give you a really good uh, a good footing. One of the common threads, and I love talking to people who worked for MSSP Socks, and there's a lot of us, is, well, two of the common threads is, first off, everyone says it's valuable because you get to see so many different technology stacks and so many different pieces of software, what works, what doesn't. It's, it's really fascinating. But then the second common thread is that everyone I know who worked for an MSSP Sock got incredibly burned out and mm. had alert fatigue and was very stressed out. And it's an interesting conversation amongst uh, expatriates of yeah, MSSP yeah, socks. Yeah. The alumni Cause, club. Because there's a lot of us. There's a ton yeah. of us who are now doing different things. So, yeah. Uh, I believe it. Okay. So that's a perfect segue. Alert fatigue. So you had a uh, online, and now I understand this, by the way, your Twitter handle is The Gambling Bird. Yes. Yep. So, okay. Things are clicking together. We'll come back to the bird part in a minute. But... Uh, I noticed a thread that you posted a little while back about alert fatigue and IR and everything, and I thought it was really interesting. And so, walk us through like what are what tell take us through some of the ideas that you were talking about in that thread. So, one of the things I'm incredibly passionate about and interested in is why people make mistakes, and one of the reasons that. People make mistakes in instant response, in MSSP socks, uh, anything of that nature, is because of something called alert fatigue. Alert fatigue has been intensely studied in other industries such as healthcare, industrial process control systems, and also in aviation. And what they found out is that alert fatigue is when a very large amount of alerts desensitizes the people who are tasked with responding them, responding to them, excuse me, and it causes them to make mistakes. Um, sometimes they will be so overwhelmed by the amount of alerts, they actually just miss something. Uh, sometimes if an alert is too noisy, they actually just will automatically assume something is a false positive. Um, sometimes there's so many different alerts that they actually focus on the wrong thing. So by and large, in multiple different industries, it's a source of human error and can cause um, in healthcare deaths, in industrial process control systems, it can cause huge industrial disasters. So, um, And in instant response, we've all kind of, even if you can't speak to an incident publicly, I think we've all seen 
instance where someone has missed something because they were tired, either because of the amount of alerts or they were physically tired. Um, so it's an interesting topic. So, Yeah, definitely. And one of the parts of that that uh, piqued my interest was aviation. I'm actually a private pilot. Yeah. I haven't exercised my certificate in many years, but I used to read this publication called Aviation Safety, which reviewed root causes of all kinds of different accidents and stuff. And Cockpit resource management has become a whole thing, yes. and managing alerts and whatnot is part of that as well as part of the design of avionics and other systems to, to help reduce all those alerts and whatnot. So in aviation and also in industrial process control systems, they actually have been very honest with the, the fact that if you have an overwhelming amount of alerts, no one human being can actually respond to them in a given time, and they understand this, and they know that this will be a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And so they actually have hard caps in multiple different industries, like you can only give this person this many alerts at this time, or else they won't be able to diagnose a root cause, figure out what they need to do to actually contain the problem, et cetera. And in cybersecurity, we just um, have thrown that out the window. <laughs> and we don't really, that's not an issue that people deal with. We say give people as many alerts as that you think that they can take. So it's, uh, it's interesting how we approach it versus other industries. And there's all these tools out there that, with the best of intentions, are able to fire alerts on all kinds of different events that yes. occur. And, you know, we at Domain Tools have, uh, we provide data that can be used to uh, to raise alerts also. And so I'm thinking we're in this interesting conundrum because we have information that's useful to people, but you're describing a very real problem. And, you know, we and I'm sure other vendors and whatnot, nobody wants to make the problem worse, but we also want to make sure people can get information they need. So talk us through, like, what's your, what's the research that you're doing now and, and what are some of your approaches to these problems? So one of the biggest passions for, for me about alert fatigue and actually measuring the efficacy of alerts is what's being done in industrial process control systems and healthcare, and that's looking to see if an alert has a meaningful response. In cybersecurity right now, we have kind of devolved into this, I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, these weird arguments about what a true positive versus a false positive is, everything like that. Mm -hmm. And most mature teams I know Everyone understands you have to measure efficacy a certain way, and most people are doing it true positive versus false positive. A lot of people have automated uh, tuning responses. Again, if it's this many false positives, we have to tune it, et cetera, et cetera. I think that should actually be thrown out the window. I think it's relevant, but not the most important measure. The most important measure is whether something results in a meaningful action. Um, in healthcare, that would be prescribing a medication, something like that. In industrial process control systems, it could be you know, shutting off a valve, something like that. But in cybersecurity, a meaningful action is essentially, from an IR perspective, it's a containment measure. So did an alert result in pulling emails? Did it result in blocking domains? Did it result in um, network containing a host with malware? And that's how we see whether or not an alert is valuable, is are we actually finding any sort of malicious behavior that resulted in some sort of containment action. So, And this may seem like a stupid question, but when you have a, if we work backwards from a, a successful containment, yeah, is it the case that all the time or almost all the time an alert was involved as opposed to hunting through logs, looking for anomalies and whatnot, where there may not have been an actual alert per se. So this actually leads to another really interesting discussion in alert development, is that sometimes alerts are so noisy that 
they're, they're valuable, but they're noisy. So you, you know that if they're really noisy, you shouldn't actually be alerting on this in real time. And this is where you actually might want to take a step back and say, this is too no noisy to alert on in real time. We can't have our analysts getting hundreds of hundred of these a day. So instead, what we want to do is we want to make a report or we want to use it for hunting on a biweekly basis or a monthly basis or something like that. So um, it depends on the volume of alerts that are coming through because you can find malicious behavior from an alert that, again, is too noisy to alert on in real time but can be used for hunting or for, again, some kind of report generation, if, gotcha. that, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that does make sense. So so what happens next with the work that you're doing? Are you developing best practices? Are you developing tools? Are you, like, what, where do you, how do you want to apply what you're researching and some of the solutions that you think are are useful for this problem? The most important thing for me is actually talking to other people who have been in this situation before where you can't get people to tune and you are being drowned by alerts and you notice that people are having mental health issues, actual fatigue from alert fatigue, all these different different problems. But again, at the same time, this is also endangering the company because people are going to miss malicious or suspicious behavior because they're suffering from alert fatigue. And the most important thing for me is to give people the tools and the language to talk to management and say, this is a problem. And it's we're not just complaining as a team, like this is a problem for you and the company. And that's important to me is like having these conversations with people and saying, and then looking at me and being like, you know, I actually took some of the language and the verbiage that you suggested I use, and I talked to my management, and they changed something. Mm -hmm. And that that was important and helpful to me. So, so those changes could take the form of both policies and adjustments to the technology, it sounds like? Yes. Yeah, so the most important thing that anyone really should be doing is that you need to have, and this is from the International Society of Automation, which does a lot of work with industrial process control systems. You need to have some sort of alert management protocol that's going on in the background for how you're actually evaluating if you have effective alerts and then tuning or shutting things off based on that. Um, and one of the problems I've noticed with content creation, I guess we could say, you know, that's how some people want to call alert development or whether you just call it alert development, is that people will focus on the actual development of the alerts and putting things into prod as opposed to how they're managed. Mm -hmm. And if you look at healthcare, aviation, again, all these different um, different fields that are related who have decades and decades of work on managing alerts, they're doing things like this and we're not in cybersecurity and we need to be stepping in that direction. And I think that needs to be like a holistic change. It can't be, it, I'm not really sure how I would go about that, but it's a holistic change, so. Yeah, so do you feel sort of like a, a voice crying out in the wilderness right now in these early days of this? Because the evolution of this, I, I have the feeling that someday we're going to get to something equivalent to what they're doing in those other fields. We're just not there yet. So yeah. you're kind of an early voice for for making some of these changes. I appreciate that. And one of the things I want to note, though, is that not, I'm, I, I'm not an early voice in making some of these changes. We are decades behind other industries, and mm -hmm. we pride ourselves in being on the cutting edge and the bleeding edge of cybersecurity. We're doing so many interesting things. But at the end of the day, something about, again, with alert development and content creation, whatever you want to call it, we are literally decades behind other industries, and we need to catch up. So Right. So when I say you're, you're early, I mean within cybersecurity – you're talking about this stuff, I think, ahead of maybe other folks. And that's sad, right. <laughs> to be honest right. with you. But that's what, yeah. that's what I meant about the yeah. voice in the wilderness. Like, you're not part of, so far, 
this is not something I'm hearing a lot about. That's why your thread on Twitter stood out to yeah. me because this is not like a big part of the conversation right now. And the, the thing that people need to realize, which is um, kind of was the impetus for me developing this talk, which the first time I ever gave this talk was internally because we were all suffering from alert fatigue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, the kind of motivation behind this is that I think there are people talking about the mental health side effects of alert fatigue. People are talking about how it leads to burnout, which leads to turnover, which we all know is a problem and a huge problem in our industry. So we're talking about pockets of it, but no one's actually talking about the fact that if your analysts are suffering from alert fatigue, they're actually going to be normalizing malicious and suspicious behavior, and you're actually endangering the missions, the, the companies that you're trying to protect in their mission. Hmm. So, yeah, that's that's quite a conundrum. I, yeah. the, by the way, I mean maybe this will be partly driven by the growing awareness of the mental health cost of yeah. what we're doing in cybersecurity. That is a bright spot a little bit that people, first of all, people are talking about it more. Secondly, it's becoming a little less stigmatized than it has been in the yeah. past. And um, and those are positive developments. We're not anywhere near where we need to be, but at least I think a lot of people are feeling a little bit more comfortable being able to come forward and say, this is hard. I'm, my life is hard right now, and I'm okay saying that. So part of the reason I looked to other industries and I tried to make a business case for the danger of alert fatigue is that while that's all well and good and this is getting the people's mental health issues now I don't even want to call it a mental health issue the the toll mm -hmm. that instant response and alert fatigue takes on people in the forms of anxiety and depression um, is getting more attention at the end of the day the sad reality is that there's a lot of people who just don't care mm -hmm. and they never will care they don't have empathy um, so you have to be able to talk to people again in the business cost of what can this cost the Efficacy, business? Efficacy, outcomes, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. there, you can make the case to certain people. You can be like, listen, everyone in the sock is burnt out. Everyone's tired. Everyone has anxiety. People have issues with depression. You know, people are leaving. We have high churn. And there, I can tell you from experience, there will always be people who really don't care. And mm -hmm. so you have to make a, a better case to those people. And we can do that based on data from other industries. Gotcha. Yeah. So how do you envision this work unfolding are you teaming up with other folks to help like drive the development of your research and your findings and push some changed approaches through the industry how's it going to take root so the interesting thing is that because of how our industry approaches alert development there's no two cases that are the same so i am extremely extremely lucky that i'm at a very large shop that does in-house content creation so how i would approach this where I currently work is much different than how you would approach it if, like the majority of people, you have a cybersecurity team of three <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or five mm -hmm. or eight. Um, and most people don't have the luxury of being able to do in-house content creation. So you can drive this conversation internally if you are, again, if you have a rich prob person problem like me and you have all these people, you can work with them on it, which is a whole different problem than if like the majority of people you're doing all out of the box alerting. And we were talking about this the other day. I think you actually need to hold the vendors accountable and bring them your numbers and say, listen, you gave me 99% false positives, 99% of these had no meaningful action and you need to hold the vendor accountable actually and influence your spend that way. Got so. it. Yep. So that makes sense. So those of us in vendor world obviously have a critical role 
to play in all of this. Yes. So, yeah, there was somebody who, and I don't remember the name. You were mentioning the research of someone James, in that thread. James Reason. Yeah, I talk love to James us Reason. about, yeah, tell us a little bit about James Reason. So James Reason um, influenced a lot of the changes in industrial process control systems about making things safer, reducing the amount of alerts, and saying, again, why do people make mistakes, and how can we, you can never stop some people from making mistakes full stop. They, it will always happen. Um, but at the end of the day, how can we actually reduce the amount of mistakes that people make? And if I could do a quote, it's like one of it's one of my favorite things, actually. Yeah. So James Reason, he says, we cannot change the human condition that humans will occasionally make mistakes. We can change the conditions under which people work and ensure they are working in an environment where they make less mistakes. And that's something that's really important to me is making I look at alert fatigue in terms of safety. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make our workplaces more safe and not just, again, for the people who work in them. We're trying to make the our data more secure. We're trying mm -hmm. to make our companies more secure. And we have to do this by reducing human error and in turn reducing alert fatigue. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's super interesting. So shifting gears a little bit um, and stepping back and just looking at cybersecurity writ large, like you are, you're making a compelling case about some of the things that are really difficult. What are some of your favorite things that are going on right now? Like, what are you excited about? So one of the things I really enjoy about cybersecurity is I haven't done this for very long. And I like that every few years there's a different kind of pocket and facet of cybersecurity that comes out that people can specialize in. And you can, you can hop around and move about and specialize in different things and actually apply all this kind of gained and earned knowledge to different fields. And um, I'm really actually encouraged by the fact that we're bringing more people in who are coming from different fields and bringing their experience and how it's we're becoming a much more diverse group, so. Yeah, I think that's really, uh, that's valuable and something, it does seem to be a little bit of a trend that's growing, which is yeah. great. I hope it continues to. Um, very cool. What is something Besides alert fatigue, what's what's something else that you feel like people are just getting wrong that you would like if you could change uh, the beliefs or um, practices or something? Of, like, what are we as an industry just like missing the boat on that we could change? So, I, okay, so I think as far as what do we need to change in general, I think there needs to be tighter communication between what's being sold to executives and what's actually being delivered mm. um, as far as um, from vendors. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, that actually benefits everybody because you're doing realistic expectation setting. Um, I think from a lot of the people who I've spoken to who are purely, I hate, I hate this term, but on, on the business side, mm -hmm. they feel that they were sold something that's not being delivered. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the security teams pay for that. The, the vendors pay for it. Everyone pays for it. So that's something I'd like to see that, that conversation tightened up. Um, one of the things, too, that I, as someone who, my parents started having kids when they were 40, my parents were in their 70s, the amount of scams and targeting that mm -hmm. anyone over, like, probably 65 gets is just disgusting. It is. And I'd really like to actually have more government intervention about how do we educate seniors about dodging these scams, whether they're romance scams, whether it's the Norton antivirus email that my parents get five times a day and they every single time they ask me, they go, Caitlin, is this real? And I go, no. Like, it's still I, not real. And I, I like that a lot of the work that we're doing with CISA about 
uh, CISA has become a lot stronger in the past couple of years, and they're doing much more good work. But I think as far as actually protecting individuals, that there's a lot more work to, to be done that's important. And it, it gets put at the wayside. And I think that's actually the government's job, to be honest with you, to educate people about cybersecurity scams, which are so prevalent right now. Yeah. So. And, and I see this, too. My folks are kind of in that age group. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and I think the parents of InfoSec practitioners are lucky because they probably get, you know, a little bit. They've probably got a little bit of a leg up compared yeah. to folks who don't have that connection. But that's not there aren't nearly enough cybersecurity practitioners to cover all of the parents out there. Yeah. Who, yeah. And who so are we, getting targeted. We talk all the time about in cybersecurity about, you know, user education. It's cybersecurity awareness month right now. But we're gearing that all towards companies and corporations. And I think we need to gear it more towards individuals mm -hmm. and how they can protect themselves in their personal lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, honestly, it's something that absolutely should be being taught in schools and from a pretty early age yes. in schools yes. also. And I as far as I know, my kids are, you know, one out of high school and one almost out of high school. I believe they've had approximately zero cybersecurity training. And yeah. I know that there are some school districts where I'm sure they're doing some of it, but I don't think it's very prevalent. I'm sure there's no national curriculum around it, and there should be. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, you know, that is another thing that maybe someday that is going to happen. I don't know much about any plans for it right now. And, and you're right. I think yeah. the government could lead in that respect. Well, who else is going to do it? No one else is going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That's, that's who needs to do it. You're protecting your citizens. So Yeah. Yeah. No, very true. Okay. Now, we need to come back to the second half of your Twitter, Twitter handle, the bird half. Yes. So, all right. I mean, let's talk birds. So I'm an obsessive bird watcher. Right now I'm at over, I've seen probably over 1,200 unique species. I might be closer to 1,300, which is respectable. This is like, it's, it's highly respectable in bird, bird world. Like, mm -hmm. so anything over 1,000, you're like, oh, this person's serious. And I'm like, yes, I'm incredibly serious. Um, I started bird watching uh, 10 years ago when I was, uh, I was in Kenya. And that's kind of where I first caught the itch. And I started learning about how birds are dinosaurs and evolution and all that kind of, well, not learning about evolution, but how d dinosaurs evolved into birds uh, more, more often. So Okay, yeah. so what was the species that you posted a picture of on your Twitter feed that absolutely looks like a dinosaur? Oh my gosh, that one. So if you, any kind of bird in general, even if you look at a chicken, I want you to look at the feet of a chicken. Those are very reptilian. They're oh, very, for sure. Yeah, they're very, very reptilian. Yep. So any kind of, again, and baby birds in general look like these kind of malformed, weird dinosaurs. Baby birds are some of the scariest things to look at that there are, especially right yes. after they've hatched. They're, they're, they're terrifying. Yes. and But if you look at, again, just the feet of any kind of bird, they're, they're very reptilian. And you can mm -hmm. see these kind of dinosaur aspects to it. Um, I... I'm a slightly competitive bird watcher, so I'm a lister. So I go out and I see as, how many species can I see. And it's been um, a really beautiful piece of my life where I know no matter what's going on, no matter how stressed I am, no matter what I'm doing, I can go out into nature and I can go bird watch and I can kind of recenter and I can come back to myself. Um, and it's a lifelong hobby. Mm -hmm. So I can get really, really busy at work and not bird watch for six weeks. And I'm like, oh, like I have to, I'm like, I just need to get out in nature and I need to go do this. And it's like, I can come back to myself. So it's a, a beautiful gift, bird watching to me. That so. seems like a very valuable, um, there are a lot of very valuable aspects to that in a stressful work, in a stressful yes. world and a stressful work 
field. Yes. So, okay, so do you record those species in an Excel sheet or uh, in a book? or? What? I have an Excel sheet. I have a... Um, I use something called eBird, which is uh. really, really interesting. And that's like a... Um, eBird is run by the University of Cornell. It's a huge database worldwide for all the birds people have seen done by geolocation. Uh, I use it to scout different places that I go. And there's kind of like this wonderful cybersecurity cocktail question where people are like, if you could do cybersecurity for anyone, like no strings attached yep. money, yep. who would you do it for? And mine would most likely be eBird or Taco Bell. But the Taco Bell <laughs> aside, um, yeah. Right, I, we're going to come yeah. back to that <laughs> the, um, for sure. eBird's a, a, wonderful, a wonderful program, so yeah. Yeah, I you know my daughter was really into birds for a while when she was very young, and she used to think she might want to go to Cornell because yeah. of the ornithology lab that they have there. Her her interests have changed over the years, but okay, wait a minute, Taco Bell. So, Taco Bell is its own kind of food. It's and I, I say this as someone who lived in I lived in Mexico for like on and off for probably like a year and a half. Like I I really like actual Mexican food. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite things. Taco Bell is its own odd type of cuisine. You have to and, put it in a different bucket. Yeah. And I love it. And it reminds me of my family. And when um, I, it reminds me of my sister, when she comes into town, the first thing she wants to do for some reason is go to Taco Bell. And whenever I, if I'm really stressed, like I can't, I'm 35, so I can't eat Taco Bell all the time. But like, if I'm really stressed, I'm like, you know, I just need, I'm like, I got the itch. I'm like, this will make me feel better. I have some Taco Bell. And, okay. Yeah. So Taco Bell versus Taco Time, religious war? I mean, there would be no competition Taco Bell every time. We all know this, so. I don't know. Taco Time has a habanero burrito that's not bad. I don't know how you feel about habanero. But. I, I, I like spice. I like to eat things that are so spicy that I literally start sweating. So, oh, yes. boy. Excellent. Yeah, that's good. So we'll have to get some spicy stuff sometime. <laughs> you should come visit us in Seattle. Come to the Domain Tools headquarters, and we'll get some spicy stuff. Um, I might take you up on that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so where's yeah. the hot sauce? Hello. Oh, yeah, we, we've, you know, we've got a lot of people that are way into the Scoville units uh, in, among our, our workforce. So very cool. And birds, by the way, I believe cannot taste capsicum. Like they're, they're, yes. they, they're immune to it. They can eat habanero peppers and it doesn't even matter. So the um, – Seed mixture I use in my backyard, which is to deter squirrels, um, they actually have hot pepper seed seeds, um, but they're really expensive. And oh. so I mix them actually like in equal parts with safflower seed, and that way the squirrels don't get to anything or anything like that, and the birds still eat it. So That's brilliant. Like yeah. squirrels are impossible to defeat. Squirrels are engineers and magicians yes. and wizards, and but they can't stand hot stuff. Yes, so if That's you do awesome. equal parts, the, the the hot pepper seed with whatever other seed you want, it works out really well, and you just mix it in together. This week on Ornithology with Breaking Badness. <laughs> <laughs> we always go off on tangents. And, uh, wow, so you've given us a couple of puns. You've given us interesting insights into bird world and a lot of really interesting insights into alert fatigue. Caitlin, thank you so much for being a guest yeah. on Breaking Badness. It's been really fun to chat with you. Thank you for having me, Tim, and everyone on the podcast team. Thank you. All right. So that wraps us up from Gurkhan. Hopefully not the last time from Gurkhan. But uh, with that, this uh, we will see you next week. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. 
We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.